I'd like to express to you my gratitude for the gracious privilege you've extended to me in inviting me to uh, have a participatory role in this week. I appreciate so much the, the groundswell of prayer that has been lifted to God on behalf of this week, this school, students, the faculty, and many of you have indicated to me that you have been praying for me regularly. Not infrequently, students have stopped me and said, you were prayed for this morning from 6 to 7 in the morning around this hall. Well, if you can't preach after that, you've got problems. I do not exaggerate. I'm not engaging in any kind of hyperbole. When I say I am unaware of any time in my ministry where I have been as conscious of an undergirding in prayer by God's people as I have this week. And therefore, to you, I am indebted. And I thank you sincerely for that. Many of you have been here every night. I've been here every night. <laughs> and I appreciate that consistency and that loyalty and support. About 5.30 this afternoon, the phone rang, and and I answered it, and a young boy was on the end, I, I'd say maybe 13 or 14. If, if you're here tonight, son, thanks for the call. His question was, uh, when does the revival begin? I'd think about that. Of course, what he wanted to know is, uh, when did the revival service begin tonight? I was tempted to say to him, son, it's already started. Because I believe it has. And let us pray that uh, though we officially end tonight the meeting together, that this will be just but the beginning uh, of something that we cannot even fathom that God wants to do in our college this year in our seminary, in our community, and in our community churches. We are asking God to touch every point in Wilmore this year. The scripture on which I shall base my last message for, for this crusade is in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. John chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 4. Jesus needed to go through Samaria. 
So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar. Near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Skip down now to verse 27. And at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. They were flabbergasted that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek? Or, 
Why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men of that city, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And we'll end our reading with verse 29. And the attempt to preach from the story of the woman at the well runs into the same pitfalls of trying, as I did this morning, to preach from the story of the prodigal son. For there certainly is no stone that has been left unturned. There is no point or no emphasis that has not been made. And so neither this morning nor this evening is my goal novelty. Rather, my goal is reinforcement and conviction. As again tonight, I take you over some old terrain and certainly one of the most familiar stories out of the life of Jesus. Out of the verses that I did read, however, there is one verse that I would like to share with you tonight, which I am going to use as a point of departure for everything else that I will share with you. And that is the opening phrase that one finds in verse 28. Then the woman left behind her water pot. I can find only two references in the entire New Testament to water pots. If the lexicon that I checked is accurate, which it probably is. The only other reference in the New Testament to a water pot is also given to us by John. And as a matter of fact, it's only two chapters previous to this reference, back in chapter 2, the story of the wedding at Cana of Galilee, where there were six water pots, water pots for foot washing, water pots for hand washing in symbolic cleansing. But tonight I want to speak to you not about six water pots, but about just one water pot. And not six water pots that were utilized at the happy occasion of a wedding and a wedding reception, but, were rather, but rather a water pot 
that is born by one individual who desperately needs to meet the Lord Jesus. And after he met Jesus, and after he revealed to her what her need was, and after she found him to be the living water, what she did was rather interesting. She, she just left behind her water pot. And she went running back to her village to share with her townspeople this encounter that she'd had. I wonder why she left it behind. Did she think perhaps that Jesus needed it more than she did? After all, he had asked for a drink of water. Did she leave it behind, perhaps? Because in her excitement to get back to her village and to become an evangelist, she knew that carrying a water pot would slow her down. You see how far fast you can do the hundred meter dash or run from here to Highbridge with a water pot on your head or shoulder, however it was carried. Or maybe, maybe there's yet another reason why she left it behind. And that would be the same reason that you leave things like umbrellas and books and occasionally, God forbid, lecture notes from my class. You simply forget them. You simply forget them. This past summer, I paid a visit to the lost and found over in the Fletcher Early building. I was tempted to start an umbrella franchise and textbooks and Bibles. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing how many different types of things and commodities you all leave behind in classrooms, in dorm rooms, and everywhere else. A few years ago, I read a little vignette in the magazine that's published by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. It used to be called His. I think about a year or two ago, they changed its name to You, just the letter U. You people, maybe university people. But I remember reading a few years ago about how much material is actually left behind by people on the subway trains 
in New York City in any given 24-hour period. A guy who was responsible for this kind of material actually sat down and tried to evaluate what would be the market price of the things people leave behind on a subway train, in the Big Apple, in one 24-hour period. And it was astounding how many things were being left behind. It was astounding what different kinds of things were being left behind, not just gloves and umbrellas and brown bag lunches. I was amazed to discover in this article, believe it or not, over a given space of time, how many are left behind on a subway train. Imagine sitting down on those biters. <laughs> that same article said that you'd be amazed how many of those ventriloquist dummies are left behind. And the guy writing the article said, oh, that God would leave the other kind of dummies behind as well. People are always, always leaving things behind. And the question I want to share with you tonight, my brothers and sisters, is simply this. In addition to a water pot, what does a person leave behind when they meet Jesus Christ? A water pot? Yes. But what else does a person leave behind when they meet the living Christ? I want to suggest to you out of this story that there's at least three additional items that this woman left behind in addition to her water pot. And I believe in my own heart tonight that they may be exactly the things that some of you need also to leave behind and don't take with you one day more into this quarter. You need to just leave them behind with Jesus Christ. What's the first thing that she left behind in addition to the obvious physical object? I want to suggest that this woman, anonymous, unidentified, and I'm kind of glad we don't know her name, I want to suggest that in addition to her water pot, she also left behind the burden, the weight, 
of her sin and in its place she took away a clean slate a tabula rasa I just threw that in for you Latin majors I wonder tonight now I have not ever in my life carried a water pot It occurs to me that that they could be quite heavy especially when they are filled with water And I would want to share with you tonight that maybe that weight maybe that burden that this poor woman day after day after day carries either on her shoulders or on the top of her head that that burden that weight is but a symbol of another kind of a weight another kind of a burden that day after day she has to carry around John in his gospel is the master of the obvious and the spiritual do you remember that time when Jesus turned to Thomas and said Thomas I want to wash your feet Do you remember what Peter said? Peter said, "Lord, you'll never wash my feet." You know, Peter had a love affair with the word never. There are three times when Peter used the word never. On one occasion he said, "Lord, all of the other disciples may abandon you the bunch the rest of us may turn out to be a bunch of chickens but I'll I'll never forsake you Lord you'll never never wash my feet and in over in Acts chapter 10 Peter sees a vision of a sheet let down from heaven filled with all sorts of creatures and the voice says Peter rise and eat and Peter says but lord I've never eaten anything that's unclean I want to say to you tonight be extremely careful and cautious when you use the word never in a conversation with the almighty I remember the day I graduated from seminary. President Kinlaw, my mentor, turned to me and said, "Glad to see you go." No, he didn't. And Shirley and I were on our way to drive up to Boston to begin graduate studies. We left about five o'clock in the morning. 
driving an old Volkswagen Beetle. That you couldn't start without jump starting. That's another thing Shirley taught me how to jump start. <laughs> but I had to do all the pushing. And we couldn't get it started. We had friends come out and finally we got going and the motor kicked over and, and we took off. At that point in my life, I'd been living in Wilmore for four years, two years single, two years married. And I remember as we went over the last hump as you go out of town, I turned to Shirley, I remember exactly what I said. This is, this is June, 1967. I said to her, honey, Wellmore's been a great place. You're ahead of me. <laughs> I'm just going to sit down, I think. <laughs> I said, honey, you know, Wellmore has been a great place to come to study. but I would never want to live here. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit flipped out his notebook and he made a little notation on that. You'll never wash my feet. And then Jesus turned to Thomas even before he said, and I want you to wash other people's feet. Even before he said that, Jesus turned to Thomas and said, Thomas, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, you will never have any part with me. I wonder if Jesus was saying to Thomas, the dirt on your feet is but a symbol of the uncleanness that's inside of you. And if you don't allow me to wash you, I think you have exactly the same thing here. The burden on the shoulder or, the, or on the head is but a symbol of the much more profound burden in her life. Isn't it interesting that the word here for left behind, she left behind her water pot, Akiemi, correct, Prof? Thank you, sir. That the word for left behind is the, exactly the same word that I shared with you earlier in the week from 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive. Forgive. But it's the same word here. So you could translate that, if we confess our sins, 
God is faithful and just to leave your sins behind. You don't have to carry them with you. It's the same word that Jesus used in that model prayer where he taught us to pray and forgive us our debts or sins or trespasses. Forgive as we forgive one another. And I want to say to you tonight that God is extending to some of you the privilege of leaving the burden of your sin behind. I don't think we've sung it this year, but high on the charts at Asbury is that song, we know it well, it is well with my soul. Do you remember how one stanza goes? My sin, all oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Don't put a period there. There's nothing blissful about sin. It's what follows that's blissful and euphoric. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. That's leaving it behind. I'm leaving it behind at the cross. I don't have to carry it anymore. And many of us know Isaac Watts' song, At the Cross, part of which says, At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It's left behind. She left both burdens behind. The burden on her shoulder and the burden in her heart. And you can leave that behind tonight as well. The second thing she left behind is this. She left behind a formal religion that was based on a place. And she took away in its place an experiential religion that was based on a person. Let me give you tonight two words from the story. I'd like you to underline them both in your text. They both begin with the letter M. The first one is found in verse 20, the first M word. She says to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. You see, she was debating where is God to be worshipped? Is he to be worshipped on this mountain? Is he to be worshipped on that mountain? Is it to be on Gerizim? Is it to be in Zion? Let me give you the second M word. Skip from verse 20 down to verse 29. 
The M word in verse 20 is mountain. The M word in verse 29 is man. If you had said to this woman earlier, show me your religion, she would have said, come see this mountain. But now that she has met Christ, and if you say to her, show me your religion, she says, come see this man. Not a place, but a person. A formal religion for an experiential religion. Oh, this woman is extremely knowledgeable. She knows there's a Messiah coming. She knows everything about religious history. She has a lot of the answers, just the way that you have a lot of the answers. You've been in Sunday school all your life. You were called to VBSs. You don't know how many teen retreats you went to and how many revival services you've sat in. You know all the histories. You know all the answers. You know all the traditions. But you've never met the man. You've never met the man. You've got a mountain, but you've never met the man. Jesus Christ says to someone tonight, I'd like you to leave behind anything other than a real relationship with me in your life. Now the third one is this. She left behind a bitter spirit. And she took away in its place a witnessing spirit. I wonder if that water pot all by itself is not only a symbol of the burden in her heart, but if that water pot all by itself is not only a symbol of the loneliness of her life. She's an outcast. As far as her villages go, her villagers go, she's scum. She's garbage. She's a village tramp who's lived with at least five men and is now working on number six. And maybe that's the reason why she comes to the well in the middle of the day when you all know that that's absolutely crazy. You come either before sunset or after sunrise. But she's not welcome at the times when other people are there. And she looks at a lot of men who abused her and who have abused her. But she goes back to her village, and I love this part, 
She goes back to her village and says, let me tell you about a man that I met. You need to meet him too. Let me tell you about a man I met. And everybody began to scoff and to smirk and said, here comes number seven. Oh, I wonder what man this time. And she said, no, no, no. You, you misread. He's not that kind of a man. Every other man I loved, every other man I met said he would love me if. And there were strings attached. Sorted strings attached. But this man loved me unconditionally. He loved me. He's different from any other man that I met, and I'd like to share him with you. That's a witnessing spirit. I think there are some people here tonight in this congregation who would identify with the mother-in-law of Ruth when she said to her daughter-in-law, don't call me Naomi, but call me Mara. Don't call me pleasant, beautiful, attractive, winsome. Don't call me that. Call me Mara, bitter, filled with resentment because life has been unfair and you have been knocked silly by circumstances over which you have no control. Some of you tonight can identify with Hannah, the mother of Samuel. It is said of her that she prayed to God with a bitterness in her soul. But I want to share with you tonight that when Jesus Christ steps into your life, he takes away the bitter spirit, the resentment spirit, and he replaces it by a forgiving spirit and a witnessing spirit and a loving spirit. My ears shot up last night when Dr. Blue prayed. I don't know if Dr. Blue's here tonight or not. I don't expect you to remember this. But in the middle of his prayer, he quoted from the book of Ezekiel. Now when anybody quotes from the book of Ezekiel, one of my ears pricks up. When anybody quotes from the book of Ezekiel in prayer, both of my ears prick up. And I remember that little phrase out of the 36th chapter that Dr. Blue shared with us last night in his prayer. God makes a promise to his people. And this is the promise. My people, when I bring you back into my land and back into your land that I promised to your forefathers, I'm going to take away the stony heart. But God never creates a vacuum. And here's the part that Professor Blue quoted. I'm going to take away your heart of stone. 
And in its place, I'm going to put within you a new spirit. A new spirit. Subtraction followed by replacement and addition. That's what you have here. I want, my dear sister, I want to take away from you everything that is destructive and unhealthy and detrimental, and I want to replace it with a new spirit. And is there someone tonight? God is saying to you, I want to take away that destructive, detrimental spirit, and I want to give you a new spirit tonight. And we never read of this woman again. I think we'll meet her in heaven. This little chorus has become popular in the last couple of years. And I think if the woman could eavesdrop over heaven and hear it, she's probably singing it. I think it'd be a great song for her to sing and an equally great song for you to be able to sing tonight. You know that little chorus, something beautiful, something good. Oh, all my confusion.